0: Imagine how much you'd learn if you could ask your personal heroes anything you want about their life and their secrets to success. In each episode, we get to do that. This is the Playground Broadcast. Where everyone plays and no day is the same. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the very first episode of the Eat Your Greens podcast. I'm thrilled to welcome on the show today, Mr. Hang Chong, founding member of Foodscape Collective and an environmental educator. So Welcome.
1: Right, Thank you, Maya. And it's a pleasure and honor to be your first interviewee for this podcast. And I'd like to congratulate you on this initiative. Thank you. So
0: maybe to start us off for this episode, you can tell us a little bit about your background, your work, and just to help me and the audience understand exactly what it is that you do.
1: Yeah, sure. I'm born and bred in Singapore all my life, and one of the formative experiences that I've Had was uh, joining the scout movement when I was in grade 3 and primary school here. Uh, I was a scout for 10 years and it opened up opportunities for me to go outdoors, experience what the camping was like and uh, being comfortable in outdoors, especially in Singapore when it's kind of challenging with our heat and humidity. Yeah. Well, the scouting movement actually also has a motto And although it's not always on my mind, I've always found it very relevant, especially in this day and age. And that is to be prepared. And I hope that uh, in the short lifetime that I have here, that I can be prepared for any and all of the challenges that uh, we face together in the years ahead.
0: Yeah, and I think with recent issues of sustainability, of inequalities in the world, you know, there's so many things going on. And the biggest thing that we can do is be prepared for the somewhat, you know, unexpected challenges that we may face. So yeah, I think that's definitely a great motto and that's definitely something we want to bring forward and not only to be prepared ourselves but to prepare the future generations.
1: Yeah, that's right. So well, actually when the founder of the scout movement uh, Lord Baden-Powell, he by following this motto, he actually left a farewell message before he passed on. And in that farewell letter, he actually advised fellow scouts uh, to leave this world a better place than we first found it. This has been sort of my abiding motivation to try to ensure that I I do live up to this, or rather uh, meet up to this piece of advice that he, he left us.
0: Okay, and so now you definitely work in sustainability and kind of carrying forward your learning and your experiences in the outdoors from the scouts. So, why sustainability? I mean, I'm sure there's a sense of protectiveness over the environment, but what exactly grew you into this passion? And did you feel that you had certain skills that are especially helpful in this field?
1: I can't say that I was very, very skillful uh, in any sense of the word. Well, besides being involved in the scout movement, I, I consider myself more of a, a nerd. So, I spent my school holidays when my parents actually sends me to my aunt's home. And uh, most of the time, I I would be buried into a set of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Not sure whether youths of this age will know about this anymore. But uh, in essence, (laughs) of course, now we have Wikipedia. (laughs) But in in essence, I, I devoured knowledge and trivia, whether applicable or not, from a very young age. And with this sense of curiosity, my favorite subject in school was geography. And geography enabled me to learn about both the physical and cultural landscapes, social landscapes of this one and only planet that we have. It also opened my eyes to the environmental and ecological challenges that we face. And also, I think on reflection, it also enabled me to understand a little bit about systems thinking, you know how different cycles, planetary cycles, be water, carbon dioxide, nitrogen actually interact with each other and the kind of impact that human civilization is having on them. While I did not actually, I wasn't very exam savvy, so I didn't even finish my books. When I took in part in my major exams, I didn't do that well at all. So although I didn't have a career plan or path, never went to university, I was quite privileged in the sense that with many good friends and acquaintances, they have actually invited me uh, opened open doors and opportunities for me, uh, one of which was joining the Nature Society of Singapore and with fellow friends who were interested in bird watching, understanding our local mammals and fish, uh, coral reefs and mangrove swamps. This enabled me to actually learn about the biodiversity in Singapore and eventually led on to opportunities to uh, share this love of nature with people around me and actually get paid for doing so. So I, I guess I was more of a accidental environmental educator than anything else.
0: <laughs> so I guess that's, that's a great message for our audience is that you don't need to be great in school. You don't have to get the best grades all the time. Would you say that, you know, passion is is more important and it's more about the experiences that you can get that can bring you forward?
1: I think my life experiences certainly tells me so, but uh, there's a huge caveat there, as I mentioned, that I'm privileged in the sense that I was the eldest son of three uh, children in my my family. My parents uh, retired. uh, I don't have any dependents. And when you do not have any liabilities, it's quite, quite easy for you to forge or spend time in the things that you are passionate or interested about. So, therein lies that privilege for me to explore different options for me. for those who who are of a different circumstance, then the realities of uh financial or physical security comes in. and I think this is one of the conundrums that a few advocates for environmental and sustainability may have. you know how can they have a green career, perhaps bearing in mind their own personal circumstances?
0: Yeah, definitely. That's, it's, everybody starts at a different point. And even with the same goal in mind, there might be a different path for everybody. So we've kind of understood that your path has been to get experience. Um, you've been lucky to connect with different people who have given you opportunities. For our audience who might be of different circumstances, what kind of options do you recommend and how can they make an impact whether on a small scale, on a big scale, what do you think is the best path forward, for example, for a teenager at the moment?
1: I think for a teenager, opportunities and the horizons are wide. Of course, depending on what kind of education system you are subjected to, whether voluntary or otherwise, I think if you, if you interview or if you ask any parent or educator, they will probably tell you, or at least in my experience most education systems are set up purely to, or primarily to provide skilled labor for the jobs that are available in the market. And so for anyone who wants to forge a different path, or especially in this day and age, we are in the, what, what we call the knowledge economy, right? Or what do they call it now? The industrial revolution, the post-industrial revolution 3.0. You know, uh, lots of manual work has been replaced by uh, automation, robotics. So it's not so much what you know, because knowledge and skills are advancing at, at such breakneck speed. No one in this day and age can be like uh, Leonardo da Vinci anymore. <laughs> <laughs> For example, who, who... I mean, some people here still claim that they are, you know, uh, what's the word, do they call it? Not a polygod. Uh, someone who, you know, is an uh, expert in many different fields. Uh, it's not possible in this day and age. But nonetheless... The advancement of the internet, I think, has enabled anyone with access to it to learn on their own. And that, that's truly a, a breakthrough. As you mentioned earlier, as long as you have this thirst for knowledge and the willingness to continue learning and discover, be curious about the challenges, the needs of the people and the community around you, as long as you can add value to your community and society, I think there'll always be a place. For you, no matter where you are or whichever any starting point that you have. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's definitely a very good point that the internet and what my goal is ultimately with this podcast is that there is so much knowledge out there to be shared. And through the internet, we can access all of this information. And it's definitely a great time for young people, old people, anybody as you said, who has access to the internet to have a platform and to make a difference within their communities. And you also mentioned that, of course, knowledge now, because everything, you know, technology and scientific breakthroughs are really accelerating and happening at such a fast rate that you can't really keep up. Flexibility is probably one of the biggest skills is being able to learn and being able to continuously Connect with other people and learn about what's going on in the world. So I wanted to ask, as an environmental educator yourself, and you know, having lived in Singapore and grown up in Singapore, how do you feel that the education landscape is in Singapore in terms of environmental education?
1: Well, if I would come back to the point about how the education system is geared for jobs in the market, so the conventional wisdom here in a In Asian culture here, for example, uh, the admired professions, at least those that are high paying, uh, will be in fields of medicine, perhaps, uh, engineering, law, economics, finance, for example. And what gets left behind or little with less emphasis will be perhaps the arts, the social sciences, and even within the, science, uh, within the hard sciences, you'll see a transformation of emphasis from traditional taxonomy, ecology, towards biotechnology, and so-called life sciences. But at the end, at the end of the day, at least in one perspective, I mean, I studied economics at uh, GCA levels. And at no point in my economic studies did I encounter the concept of uh, limits to growth? So okay. conventional economics assumes <laughs> that resources are finite yeah. or infinite, infinite uh, rather. And if they are finite, they can be substituted. That means uh, human skills uh, and innovation can substitute for physical uh, factors of production, you know, like perhaps water, land, and so on, or, or even oxygen, for example. But we do know that actually there are limits to growth or infinite growth, and there are limits to ecological stability on planet Earth, right? So if if we, for example, emit too much greenhouse gases, then that will cause a cascade of impacts on the planet above and beyond global heating. So traditional education... That tends to make us specialists in a very narrow fields of knowledge, in order so that we can when we can become a skilled worker in the, the economy. Does not allow for us to understand this complexity and interactions in our planetary uh, systems. So, what happens then? That means that we can have uh, very good doctors. We can have a uh, very good mechanics, we can have very good engineers, but when it comes to trying to solve complex issues like poverty or even the pandemic, uh, we find that that requires a whole lot of different skill sets and knowledge to create holistic solutions.
0: Yeah, so going back to what you were mentioning before about you know the arts and the social sciences, There is this need, basically, for people with loads of different skills and different talents. For example, art is an incredible medium to communicate. So for environmentalism, this is obviously a key part of initiating a movement and communicating ideas. And I have noticed, because I do study economics at school currently, thankfully I've noticed a little bit of a shift towards environmental models and kind of thinking about methods to increase sustainability and decrease kind of maybe the carbon footprint of production firms. That's good. So there is kind of a shift. And yeah, it's definitely good for the younger generation to have more of an awareness. And there's people like you working towards this kind of education, which is really good. So I wanted to ask, ultimately, your goal, I suppose, is to try to change mindsets in Singapore. And to educate the community on the significance of sustainable living. So what have you learned about changing mindsets? Do you have any advice for people that are trying to introduce new ideas or kick off new projects? How do you kind of connect with new audiences and help them understand the things you're trying to communicate with them?
1: Yeah, thank you for this question. I guess I can only start by trying to share a little bit about what I learned about the The basic human condition. So the basic human condition constrains us in a few ways. For example, if I'm hungry now, all of my bandwidth would be uh, devoted to how do I address my hunger. Uh, If I'm cold, all of my bandwidth will be addressed to how do I stay warm. What does that mean? That means that without meeting or addressing my physical and physiological needs, There's probably very little available bandwidth do I have to think about other people's needs, which is why the saying goes, uh, you can only help others if you are strong yourself, right? Yeah. (laughs) And you can only be stronger if you are uh, interdependent rather than trying to be independent. Uh, That's where shared labor and uh, shared cultures thrive and expand. Uh, Just like in Asia, rice growing cannot happen if... Farmers just try to grow rice on their own because that, that requires uh, usually requires lots of water and uh, irrigation systems that require mass-scale labor, for example. So uh, coming back to physical needs, individual physical needs or what I think uh, has really been described, I'm not sure whether it's in sociology, economics, the, the Maslow hierarchy of needs. To me, I feel that that is one of the things that needs to be addressed for those of us who aspire or rather aspire to have that expanded bandwidth to think beyond our physical needs to actually start to repair or restore uh, planet Earth uh, to a more livable condition. Because for those of us with limited needs, then the dilemma, for example, may be, do I try to save, uh, do I, for example, cut down one more tree to cook for my family for the next three meals? Or do I avoid cooking at all and try to save that tree for the next generation? Now, quite obviously, most people would not be able to uh, defer some of their short-term needs and hence, environmental degradation will happen when they have limited choice. So from this dilemma, we can also understand that uh, because of social systems, the vast... Scale of inequality and unequal distribution provides us with huge opportunities for change, right? At at no point in time, I think according to statistics, do we have a lack of food, but rather it's the lack of equal distribution (laughs) that allows hunger and starvation to still happen on planet Earth.
0: Yeah, that's some very interesting points. It's definitely human nature to need to meet your own needs first. And of course, that's why before anything, we must kind of think about our mental well-being and our physical well-being and making sure we're in a position where we are able to help others. And of course, no one is superhuman, so no one can overcome these natural instincts. Um, And that's why, as you mentioned, we kind of have to work together and use all of our strengths. And because we're at a point on, on Earth right now where we can we really have huge opportunity to make change. There's, you know, there's a lot of problems, but there's also a lot of potential solutions. And there's more than ever, I I like to believe, people willing to make that difference. And one of the other points you were talking about is, yeah, the aspect of whether people can support themselves, their families. And recently I was studying kind of sustainable agriculture. And one of the themes that came up was sustainable farming practices, but
1: uh-huh.
0: before we can even demand that farmers, you know, improve their crop yields through a variety of methods, we have to be able to pay them a fair wage. And so we can't demand things from anybody if they are not in a position already to support themselves and their families. So now we can. This kind of is a good tangent to talk about Foodscape Collective. So you are a founding member of this organization. So would you like to share a bit? about the vision behind this and how it has evolved over the years and maybe your current focus with it?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, the collective didn't come about as a very intentional thing, at least in my opinion. One of the things that actually happened was my partner and I actually signed up for an urban farming course. And we met up with a fellow classmate. Through that urban farming course with this social enterprise known as uh, Edible Garden City, we were introduced by a staff to another, uh, to a mutual friend who was a geographer who was interested in farming as well. And uh, together, the four of us actually decided that uh, we were interested to understand or better understand the landscape of food in Singapore, meaning who are growing our food where is it being grown? How is it being distributed? What are the health impacts of the food that's available to us or unavailable to us? How is it being recycled? Or is there uh, possibilities of uh, regenerative systems at work? So, while each, uh, each of the four of us had uh, different interests in the landscape of food, we felt that by coming together and exploring uh, this landscape together, we may be able to unpack some of the pain points in the ecosystem and perhaps understand, create uh, more dialogue and conversations and perhaps even connect people in the landscape uh, towards more integrated and holistic systems. It's been over six years. I wish that we had moved faster despite the pandemic, but also because of interpersonal challenges and priorities, three of the original members uh, have stepped down. So I'm actually with another uh, member of ours, are actually taking on the guiding of uh, the collective. We don't really, I mean, I don't really consider myself a founding member of sorts. I mean, there was something highlighted by my fellow guardian, which is what we call ourselves, mainly because we do not want to be, we do not want to exclude people just because someone's a founder. You may have heard of the so-called founder effect which means that a founding member or founder may have such an overly significant influence over the organization that sometimes it's to the detriment of the future of the organization. Yeah. So while we try to build a fair and circular food system for all, we hope that uh, anyone and everyone can come into this network at any time and be included at the same time
0: that's really awesome yeah of course in every organization there's there's gonna be some challenges um, as you mentioned interpersonally and I think it's great that you view leadership kind of as a way to support the people that you're working with and really create that sustainable change and that change that can last through several communities so essentially you have built a community you're Foodscape Collective seems it's very community based and like community project oriented. So can you tell us a bit about the process of like have you found it easy to inspire people and to get involved in your projects and has it been easy to find people to support your work? So yeah, in these terms, what is your best advice on growing and sustaining a strong community? Well, for me,
1: I've always tried to uh walk the talk and I believe that the best example that you can be is is to be able to uh, demonstrate the values that you hold dear to. Uh, nothing speaks louder than positive actions no matter how small they are. So there have always been many instances of people coming to me and saying, oh, Han Chong, you know, I, for example, wish that I had brought my own washable cutlery today, you know, when they see me doing that. So while I do not claim or aspire to be an evangelist in any way, uh, I believe that our actions uh, and how we model our behaviour to the people closest to us will have the greatest impact towards behavioural change in our community. So we actually focus more on how we can uplift and uphold each other in the space that we have rather than to go all out and try to the word, so to speak. Yeah. So what that means is that with whatever opportunities that come on our way, we try to match them to the interests, the knowledge, and the network that people have. For example, for me, I've been privileged to work with uh, parliamentarians such as Member of Parliament uh, Mr. Louis Ng. I met through the Nature Society uh, two decades ago. Through him, he has invited me to be part of two of the private members bills that he has introduced to parliament the first being the wildlife act the second one upcoming is the good samaritan food donation bill which we hope to which is meant to help remove uh, criminal and civil liability for food donors and to encourage food donations in singapore so through that it is my i guess my small effort in trying to create change or enact change at Uh, a societal or national level. But this can only happen when we have support from all aspects of uh, the community as well. Uh, So that with that uh, groundswell of support, these things can then gain the acceptance it needs in parliament. There are, of course, those who actually are more interested in community work. And we have several of such initiatives within the network, be it in uh, soil regeneration, Community farming or even composting. This allows or provides opportunities for anyone in the community to join us in ground-up efforts that empowers people to have the choice to live a greener lifestyle. That is what we endeavor to do always.
0: Thank you. That was a really great advice, especially that everyone can make a difference just by you know acting differently and changing their habits and As if we can all play a little part, we can, you know, influence the people just in our closer communities, in our families, in our friendships, and in that way, it might, you know, snowball as it did with you. You might make new connections and start new projects. So thank you for that. Maybe um, I maybe I should just
1: add one thing. (laughs) Yeah, as a piece of advice. So as any green advocate may encounter, and I I tend not to use try to use any labels myself, uh, whether calling myself an environmentalist or advocate for that matter. But as in all aspects of uh, living in a community, whenever you decide or make choices that are different or stands out from the society or your community, often it's something, I mean, it's very, a very, very noticeable difference. All right? People may either ignore you or ridicule you, right? so. Hunts the image of a so-called, you don't have to know that there is a vegan, you know, in your community because that person will tell you straight off. Yeah. (laughs) So vegans have a bad rap. Why? Because the presumed assumption is that at each social occasion, especially when it's overeating, something very, very basic, you know, attention, point of tension has may arise. So so, how do we get acceptance? I would suppose, in my own way, I've actually had managed to just make uh, new friends with the neighbours around me. Ironically, I've lived in my neighbourhood for 20 years and I don't really know that many of them. But through spontaneous conversations, I've managed to uh, offer free food to them. So how did I get free food in the first place? And why are they interested? So, <laughs> So my point is, if you're going to ask someone to stop eating meat, they will either outright reject you outright or they will probably think for a long time before they come around to the idea. But if you said, you know, this is an opportunity for you to save money and have some free food, I don't think that person will need to think that long before he starts to ask, how did you get this food? <laughs> and where can I get access to that? Right? So my my, yeah. my my point being that how you can actually make more friends is to add value to them to their lives, as I mentioned much earlier in this interview. When you can find opportunities for that, people will come to you. So by me starting as a so-called dumpster diver to understanding where we can rescue perfectly edible food, unsold surplus food that's been thrown away indiscriminately to offering such surplus to others and allowing others to see an alternative option or even lifestyle that they have not been open to can change minds more easily. I mean, case in point, when my two nieces comes to visit me and my mom, my aunt, uh, my sister used to tell her daughters, you know, don't ever touch uncle's food. Why? Because they're all expired. Not safe to <laughs> eat. <laughs> and I never said anything. But some years back, after my sister found out and uh, joined a vegetable rescue where she lived in Little India, right? that I think was... A transformational experience for her, which allowed her to actually try out and even adopt rescued food for her whole family, and even volunteer to lead and distribute food to various community fridges in Singapore. So, did that change come from me as a sibling? No, that actually came from you know a social movement out there. So, what I'm trying to say is that yeah, while it seems ironical when I said that we. Uh, probably the best influence to the people around us. But sometimes that could also be a barrier because people may actually be receptive to voices outside yeah. the immediate circle. <laughs> you know, just like foreign consultants are uh, you know, more valued than local consultants, for example. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when the advice may still be the same, actually.
0: <laughs> and so on that note, what, what do you see as the future of food? Because... You know, there's all these different topics coming up. Um One thing that I've been kind of looking into is algae and producing kind of substitute seafood from algae or even industries such as like fake meat or yeah. like impossible burgers. Yeah. What are your views on that in the future of food?
1: Well, this is a very huge and complicated issue <laughs> which will probably deserve a whole new podcast on its own. And it's so complex. So I, I probably we'll try to share just a few things that yeah. may be pertinent to this issue. So the first thing which we, I mean, iterate is that it seems that we actually have mountains of food stored uh, on this planet Earth. Uh, the fact that they're being stored and not being redistributed equitably means that it's not actually a, a production issue. Yeah, uh, it's more of a distribution issue. Yeah, growing more food may yeah. actually be more detrimental to the, uh, the planet because it uses just more land and re- resources. Right? But secondly, uh, food is also very cultural. So uh, it's not one size fits all, right? None of us uh, will eat the same diet because of different uh, dietary, nutritional, or even uh, religious requirements. So that makes it complex. Uh, Number three, much of the food is actually uh, wasted. There's a term for it, I can't remember. the difference between uh, not just wasted, but also lost. So food loss happens usually at the farm. Food waste usually happens uh, near the tail end of the chain, which we as a consumer society is, uh, has to address. So, we're probably uh, one statistic in the US claims that half of, more than half of all food in the fridge gets thrown out, actually. Oh, wow. So, and yeah. And a report by this group called Project Drawdown, which calculates the environmental impact of various uh, solutions claim that reducing food waste and loss ranks, I think, number one or number two in terms of the impact and the amount of carbon that will be saved. So certainly, if listed as a country, you know, food loss and food waste or the production of food will rank number three in terms of carbon emissions, actually. So this is an issue which I think is hardly addressed, even in the uh, UNFCC, the Climate Change Conference, because a a lot of it is just devoted to fossil fuels, right? (laughs) (laughs) and none of it is devoted to food, even though the IPCC report from very early on has recommended a change in people's diets. Not in terms of not eating meat at all, but just reducing our meat consumption will have a very, very significant impact already. And this is something that is not in uh, the public messaging, especially from governments. Very few governments will tell its people to reduce uh, meat consumption. Despite the fact that eating one less beef burger, for example, will save you all that time that you decided to shorten in your showers, that will probably be equivalent to, I'm not sure, I think maybe 100 showers of 10 minutes each or more. So while public water conservation messages focus on things like reducing your shower time, unfortunately, that that is literally only a drop in the ocean uh, compared to... uh, What, what do we call that the 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 water footprint of some of the food choices that uh, that we make?
0: Yeah, I think I've definitely heard that livestock production consumes huge amounts of water. So that's a great way to start improving, you know, the our emission or carbon footprints and water consumption. So here's kind of a more complex question for you: What does sustainability really mean to you? Because as you mentioned, there's a lot of focus on fossil fuels. There's as like food. There's so many different facets to sustainability and it's obviously not only environmental but maybe social and economic. So what does sustainability mean to you? Yeah.
1: I guess it means different things to me, but first of all in terms of my value system, it it has always meant trying to live simply so that others may simply live. And this approach comes from the fact that our human needs are actually relatively few compared to our unlimited desires and wants. So if our economy is built around incentivizing (laughs) or urging people to be able to meet all their unlimited wants, then we're going to have a huge issue because uh, it seems that we have not reached a point where we we can actually meet that at all. So that if all the people in the Republic of China and India wants to live like us in Singapore... That will probably need four other planets like Earth. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that is the fundamental issue I think we have to understand for those of us who live uh, in a sea of consumerism, excess and waste. Therefore, by learning from the birds and learning from ecology, I guess I've been relatively proud to say that I've become almost like a vulture, an urban vulture uh, in my lifestyle in order to minimize my impact and also to change the image of a vulture into a creature that actually provides what we call, what is now known as an ecosystem service, right? Helping to reduce waste. yeah. <laughs> and of course, in the, uh, for, vult- for vultures, uh, minimizing disease even. So sustainability, uh, you also mentioned, mm-hmm. I think this day and age, they, they talk about the gray swans and the black swans, uh, the unknown unknowns. And despite the fact that perhaps 80% of the population is focused primarily on their basic needs and immediate needs, having very little time to think about future generations of the planet, unfortunately, because of of their situation, those of us who can have the privilege to do so, to think about larger issues at hand, be it the pandemic or the climate crisis, may also have to address issues that may even be further ahead with unknown timelines. So uh, these would include things that scientists Classify as a planetary extinction-level events. So what are these? These could be things like an asteroid strike, for example. So it's not a matter of whether it come. It's a matter of when will it come. <laughs> yeah. And so if we don't address that, we may not have the timeline that humans have been given to address some of our human-induced issues like ozone depletion when I first started learning about the environmentalism, for example, or even the climate crisis. And again, these are challenges, be it asteroid strike, strike. the next pandemic, again, it won't be a matter of when, or or whether it will happen, or or it's just a matter of when, if we do not so-called, to borrow very cliche terms, build back better. Yeah. Uh, These things will, will certainly require some of our mind space as well, while we address immediate issues. Yeah. So so that is I think the challenge we have. How do we fight the fires in front of our door while not forgetting that there might be fires or smoke <laughs> right out there that indicate that there's a bigger fire coming?
0: Yeah, and I think with these with these issues and kind of this unknown of what's gonna happen, a lot of people kind of feel what we call I think climate anxiety. Mm. So they're kind of worried about what's what's going to happen. And it's this sense of kind of, I guess, insecurity of the world and what's going to happen to all of us. So for people who are listening and who want to make an impact on the environment, what is one thing they can start doing tomorrow that can make a difference? You've kind of already touched on this in terms of taking shorter showers or eating less meat. Are there any other things that they can implement easily into their lifestyle that will help towards living more sustainably?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, I've talked to someone who, I guess you could categorize as a, a climate uh, denialist, you know, a fossil fuel, a self-declared fossil fuel lover. Right. In my oh. conversation with uh, this person, claims that we, the so-called environmentalists, are, are the people who, who are trying to get us to avoid an abundant or happy lifestyle, right? Because we always tell people not to take flights, Cut down your holidays, uh, don't have babies, switch off your aircon, yeah, eat less meat. So obviously, if a lot of this messaging is very, very negative, there'll be very few people who will like, who want to join this kind of lifestyle, where it's more of an avoidant lifestyle, yeah. right? Avoid everything, uh, be like a monk or nun or ascetic. But I think that's not the message that will be very, very popular. So the way to go around this, I, I realize is... To have an abundant lifestyle is is to have this concept that actually small is beautiful. Uh, being a minimalist like me is beautiful. Because why? Because I have no debt. I have no worries. In fact, my challenge is trying to give away more food than I can ever consume. <laughs> so I have a, I, I ironically have a, the opposite problem. While people are talking about yeah. <laughs> uh, scarcity, I'm talking about <laughs> overabundance. Abundance. Exactly. Yeah. So I think... <laughs> When you want to actually inspire people towards action, uh, they have to be able to see that there's abundance. There's actually either real abundance, as what I've shown, which, which, what I've demonstrated, or even the perception of abundance. Without this perceived abundance, which can happen through greater collaboration yeah, and innovation, then life is not so depressing after all.
0: Yeah, and this is... a it's really great to have this positive outlook. And I'm sure everybody who's listening is yeah, really yeah, encouraged. So if you, you, you've you...
1: ever, yeah. you know, worried about not having enough in your wallet or not wondering whether you not have not enough food, just come by my place. Mm-hmm. my <laughs> It's always, you know, welcome to another person who can so-called offer their consumption service. Because this is an ecological service. Without you cons- helping to consume all this excess food, you know, it would be a sin to waste them, uh, literally. Yeah,
0: so unfortunately, Hang Chung, thank you so much for coming in today. We're nearing the end of our, of our episode. We're running out of time. Unfortunately, I would continue this conversation. We've hit so many interesting points. But I wanted to ask one question, which I'm going to ask all my guests who come through this podcast in one to two sentences what would your best advice for all the young people out there and the old everyone's welcome here for implementing change in their communities
1: well I would say for those of you who climate anxious do know that you're not alone do reach out and find your tribe of happy people with uh, happy problems like me who wants to give away stuff (laughs) and and you'll never have to worry another day. Next, for those of you who think you have debts and liabilities, uh, perhaps it's time to rethink what we actually truly need or want. Live a more simple lifestyle. Yeah. And with that, uh, Great. You, I think we'll have many more years of abundance and, and true prosperity for all.
0: Okay, thank you so much, Han Chong, for coming in today.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Uh, I mean, that's the message for you. Chinese New Year always, which is happening in the next few years, right? Abundance and prosperity. <laughs> that never fails to, <laughs> Definitely. To, to attract people. So wishing abundance
0: and prosperity to everyone yeah, and to you. you.
1: Yeah, thank you thank for you coming bye. on. Thank you. Bye-bye.